Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everybody, it's Jack from Cultaholic, back again, it's time for some more Matches of the Month, June edition, there's no money in the bank unfortunately because I realised so late that that was actually creeping into July rather than June, but fear not because next month we'll be talking about money in the bank, this month there's a lot to talk about still, Forbidden Door, other matches as well from other promotions, but I, I guess we I guess we have to start with Forbidden Door, don't we? So let's waste no further time. And let's dive on in. This is Matches of the Month. Love is an open door. Love is an open door. Kenny Omega, remember me? I'm the guy you left covered in my own blood and the Tokyo Dome. I'm back for revenge. This is what it's all about. Forbidden Door, AW. I'm on your turf, mate. I'm going to cut your head off and hold it out for everyone to see. There's a Will Ospreay that enjoys inflicting pain that borders on psychopathy. That is the Will Ospreay that Kenny Omega is facing at Forbidden Door. This is going to be one for the ages. Who's going to win the battle? I look in the mirror and I see a winner. I see a legend. When you look in the mirror, you're the same as you've ever been. There can be only one ringleader. I'm not ready to give up that spot. I'm not ready until you take it from me. I got a point to prove, mate. I am the best wrestler in the world. It's time to show up. You should have killed me when you had the chance. Now, I will 
into your territory and I'm bringing back the IWGP United States Championship. I don't lose big matches. You don't stand a chance. Yeah, as I say, we're going to start off with the big AEWX New Japan Pro Wrestling Super Show, which I generally enjoyed for most of the show. I enjoyed um, a lot of matches that didn't make it into this podcast because they weren't, in my opinion, some of the best matches of the month, but I enjoyed them nonetheless. Uh, Like Punk versus Kojima, I thought Kojima gave a really good showing of himself, and I thought Punk really lapped up the crowd booing him, as we kind of suspected he might. He kind of enjoyed that. Um, I enjoyed the Orange Cassidy for the Orange Cassidy, excuse me, four-way match, which was silly but fun. Uh, and I thought the I didn't I mean the Jungle Boy Sonata match was okay, but I thought the Jungle Boy turn was an excellent decision. <clears throat> Aside from that, I thought there were three real standout matches, and among those, I thought there was one clear, clear standout match. Can you guess which one it is? It's it's Osprey Omega, of course it is. For the IWGP United States Championship, their second big match of the year after they clashed at Wrestle Kingdom, uh, where obviously Omega dominated Osprey quite unexpectedly. Uh, I mean, some people thought he would win. I, I remember picking Osprey wrongly. Even the people who thought Omega was going to win that first match back in January, I don't think would have thought he would win it in such brutal fashion, which he did. So it only made sense that Osprey got revenge in this one. And God, he certainly did. Uh, if you thought the first match was very dark and mean-spirited, oh, it wasn't a patch on this one. I was really enjoying this one early on when I was watching it. Um, it felt like a nice stroll, just two really, really capable, very talented elite-level wrestlers doing what they do, making no mistakes. Both guys seem to be on form. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, I need to clear my throat. <laughs> And then, just as my voice went down in quality there, the match escalated into a higher gear, and it all came from the smashing of the head into the announce table. Osprey kind of mimicking what Omega did to him at Wrestle Kingdom, where he smashed his head through a table. This was fittingly brutal. It was all downhill from there. Downhill in a good way. It was a descent into nastiness and evilness and it was great i love the callbacks to the first match i love the hatred that was clearly on display i even love the moments that were maybe a little bit too sports entertaining for some like callus slipping osprey the screwdriver i thought osprey sold his sudden realization that he had the screwdriver in his hand really well because he was kind of semi-conscious when he got past the weapon and then came to i enjoyed omega kicking out of his own finisher at one Something that I wouldn't normally enjoy, but under the right emotional circumstances, I thought it worked very, very well. One thing I didn't particularly love is the spot everyone's been talking about, which was, of course, the Tiger Driver, because, man, that was dangerous and wow. I know that Kenny's given an interview since where he says, without revealing too much, I take care of my health and all that sort of stuff, but (laughs) he landed on his head. I mean... Yeah, he tilted his head slightly and may have also spread the weight onto one of his shoulders a bit. But is that safe? (laughs) It's safer than being dropped directly onto your head. But not, I mean, it's negligible, isn't it? Things can still go horribly wrong. Luckily, it didn't go wrong and it was fine. But my word, that was scary. The match didn't need it, I guess, but it has got people talking. It has added an extra element to their feud. I'm now scared for their blow-off third match, which I assume will take place at next year's Wrestle Kingdom. We'll have to wait and see when that happens, actually. I don't know for certain. Um, 
But I mean, even though I didn't like it, I have to concede that it did add something down the stretch of this one. And obviously Osprey won. Uh, I thought this was an unbelievable match. Very, very good. Certainly a match of the year contender. Um, and just absolutely excellent. Even people who aren't necessarily usually fans of Osprey or Omega's respective styles in the ring were singing the praises of this one. Matthew, my colleague here at Cult Hot, Botchamania Matthew, really liked it. And he is no particular fan of the the kind of the more choreographed flippy stuff. I know Osprey does less flips these days, but like the high paced, like running around, overly theatrical. He doesn't really like that sort of thing that Omega and Osprey can do. But when they get brutal, you know, everyone loves it. And and that's critics, usual critics of that style included. This was a great match. The other big match, of course, the other big kind of dream encounter of Forbidden Door was Danielson versus Okada. Genuine, like, bona fide dream match status for this one. It had the tricky task of main eventing after what was a very consistent show with that previous high point of Osprey Omega. So it had a lot to follow. But if you'd back any two wrestlers in the world to be able to, you'd probably pick Danielson and Okada, or they'd be two of your first choices anyway. And it was good. It was one of the matches of the month. But can a match simultaneously be very good and a little bit disappointing? I guess it can, sort of. I mean, hey, it was still really, really cool. Still a great match. Still obviously a dream match. But maybe that dream match status is what kind of raised expectations slightly too high? I don't know. I'd be interested to know what people think of this one in particular. Also, the fact that it was on after such an amazing show, as I've said. And obviously, the other big drawback of this match was the issue of Brian's arm, which, having rewatched it since it happened, really, now that we learned what happened to his arm, he fractured it on, I think, Okada's elbow drop, about 10 minutes from the end. It makes the closing stretch really hard to rewatch because every time he kind of lands on that arm or catches it weirdly, you really, really wince for Brian Danielson. Hopefully he's okay. I wouldn't be surprised if he was out for quite some time, maybe longer than he had first seemed to estimate. He seemed to be quite relaxed about it. I guess the benefit is that, you know, WWE, excuse me, AEW can still have him on TV in this non in this non wrestling guest commentary sort of role that he excels in as well. So maybe that's why he's not too worried. He can just rest up and let it heal. But this has to lead to a rematch, right? I guess that's where they're going because I think the the probably the best thing and the most interesting thing about this match is the result, which is Okada tap not being pinned, tapping out clean. Wow, which he doesn't do. Okada is one of those wrestlers who doesn't submit. So this was a huge, huge booking decision and one which certainly surprised me. New Japan are very selective about how they, who, who they let lose in other promotions or in cross-promotional shows such as this one. From my own experience, we did the WCPW Pro Wrestling World Cup and I believe it was quite understood that Kishida was going to win. He was facing Osprey in the final. I believe that if we'd booked Osprey to beat Kushida, New Japan would have never given us Kushida again. And that's not that's nothing that we I didn't hear that directly or anything. It was just I think it was understood that, you know, you need to protect the New Japan guy. Very ironic because shortly after that Osprey would become a main eventer in New Japan and Kushida would be off in uh, WWE in NXT. So, you know, we we kind of put over the, the outgoing guy in hindsight. No, like there was never really any question that Kushida was gonna win that that tournament. So to see Okada tap out clean is insane. I guess the reason is it's because it's Danielson, who was so well-respected and so excellent. And in giving him this win, I assume that New Japan want him for a rematch with Okada where it'll be held at one of the New Japan shows, I, I, I assume anyway. 
But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see Okada get his win back. But I like this for what it was. It felt like there was still more they could do, though. Not to say it wasn't a great match. I don't want to sound too down on it. It's two of the greatest wrestlers we've ever seen. But they can hit higher heights than this one. And I think they will go on to once Brian has hopefully recovered. And the final match from Forbidden Door that I want to focus on for a second was the six-man tag team match. Sorry, not six-man. Uh, was it five? Eight man, how, many, <laughs> how many people were in this match? One sec. The Elite, Kingston, Ishii. Yeah, the five-on-five, five, that's it, there we go. I got there in the end. The 10-man tag team match. Um, the Bucks, Hangman, Eddie Kingston, and Tomohiro Ishii, the Blackpool Combat Club, and their kind of affiliate, I guess, Moxley's young boy, Shota Umino, um, who's now not a young lion anymore. He is a man. He once was a boy, but now he is a man. Doing a Tanahashi impression for some reason. It just physically, like he looks a bit like Tanahashi now. He's dyed his hair and he's all, the, the ring gear is similar and stuff. It's an, it's an odd choice. I don't know what he's going for. This match was cool. Felt like a hybrid tag team match where the first half felt like a New Japan tag and the second half felt like an AEW one. I think I preferred the first half of the match, the New Japan style. You know, I enjoyed the second half as well. It had its moments, certainly. Uh, when things kicked into a higher gear, I thought that Hangman Page was absolutely excellent. And Takeshita. They were probably the two highlights of the match for me. Takeshita booting Ishii's face off was obviously a moment that got shared. Um, in part because of Ishii's amazing sell. He is still a wonderful seller, probably one of the best in the game today. The match maybe wasn't as brutal as I thought it would be, given that it's a Blackpool Combat Club multi-man match, which are often really bloody, really violent, action spilling out all over the place. But this was more self-contained, I guess because it's building towards the blood and guts match. So they don't want to like put all their cards on the table here. They're going to save some brutality, I think, for Blood and Guts, which should be a ridiculous match when it does happen. Lots of people are still speculating that Ibushi will be involved. I can only hope that's true. Also, I, I guess this tag match didn't have to be uh, so brutal because it was on Forbidden Door with Osprey Omega, which brought the, all the brutality this show needed. So yeah, we didn't need this one to be as well. And it worked for what it was on the card. And those are the three that I really wanted to highlight, I think, from Forbidden Door. That multi-man match, that 10-man that, that tag, is an interesting match to contrast with a multi-man tag that happened in New Japan earlier in the month. Hirato! Now he's taking the head off Ishii. And the cover with the leg drop, then a kick out, a kick out. A bleeding John Moxley split open by the headbutt of Tomohiro Ishii. Meanwhile, Shoto Umino just throws Katsuchiko Okada into the railing to our left. This match has fallen apart in the most perfect way. Today ended in Y, so John Mox is going to bleed. Yes, earlier on in the month of June, we had New Japan's, I guess, the second biggest show of their calendar year, traditionally. Dominion, their big summer showdown. It's the biggest party of the summer in Japan. Um, Dominion had two matches that I really want to focus on. Um, interestingly, uh, if you watched our half-year Culty Awards on YouTube, you'll know that I nominated New Japan for my promotion of the half-year. My reasoning was that they kind of knocked out the park with their first three big, big shows, which was Wrestle Kingdom, Sucker Genesis in the spring, and then Dominion in the summer. But I have to concede that I think out of the three shows, 
it was probably Dominion that was the weakest of the three. Not to say there weren't good matches to talk about, but it'll be interesting to see if New Japan manages to carry on its momentum through the whole year, which is very difficult to do. But they do have a big G1 climax incoming with special guests such as Eddie Kingston and Noah's Kaito Kiyomiya, which makes it one of the more intriguing G1 climaxes, probably like in a good few years, probably since like pre-pandemic. So can't wait to see that. But as for Dominion itself, the final two matches on the show are the two I want to talk about. The earlier of the two was the six-man tag, the Blackpool Combat Club, as I mentioned, similar to, or an interesting match to contrast with, that Forbidden Door multi-man match. So this time we've got Moxley, Claudio, and Shota taking on the kind of New Japan dream team of Kazuchika Okada, Tomohiro Ishii, and Hiroshi Tanahashi. I don't know if this match was meant to go on this late in the in the show because they were making reference on commentary to the fact that the, the BCC had turned up uh, late because their flight was delayed and they almost missed the show. So maybe they pushed it back, but it made their arrival feel like they were a group of just like rowdy kind of rebels, just all making their way into the arena. And it was really cool. Uh, it had a really good energy going into the match. It was also, I believe, a title match because I think that the New Japan Dream Team guys are like the, the, the six-man tag team champions at the moment. And they retained those belts. They won this match, um, which I would have liked to have seen it be the other way around. But after the loss, Moxley then cut a promo saying, well, listen here, Okada, and then we got the challenge from Brian Danielson for the match that they would go on to have at Forbidden Door. So this was kind of a, a setup match, but that's not to say it wasn't a good match uh, in its own right. It had a lot of elements. There was uh, a lot of aggro between Okada and Shota Umino, who's been a real dick recently. Let me, let me just say that now. <laughs> so for those who aren't aware of Shota Umino, he obviously was Moxley's young lion like moxley went over to japan a few years ago for the g1 and just kind of kidnapped shota umino just made him his own <laughs> like he was like oh, yeah, i like this guy he battered him in a match and then kind of took him under his wing and it seems like moxley's kind of corrupted him and now he's a little shit <laughs> but because he's no longer a young lion shota now has his own gear his own look he's evolved beyond the basic young lion black trunks and now he's dyed his hair and he's got colorful trunks and I don't think his look matches his attitude. He's kind of gritty and would fit in well with the BCC. He's kind of a wild character, but he's dressed like a pretty boy baby face. I don't quite understand. And you know what? The crowd don't seem like they understand either because he is not getting the reactions that I think New Japan would have hoped. And that's a shame because he's very talented. This match helped. I think he's more... The crowd are more willing to accept him for, for the heel that he's trying to be when he's with the BCC, when he's with these these more experienced, more well-known dudes who come in and try and tear the place up. When he's on his own, that's when we kind of see that the, the booking hasn't really helped him. But in this case, it did work. And he was disrespecting Okada, kind of mirroring what Okada was doing when he first came up to Tanahashi. That, that was quite interesting because he's not the only person acting like that towards Okada. More on that later on in this episode. I thought this was a fine match. Like, uh, probably like the second best on the show, but I wouldn't say it was quite as good as the one at Forbidden Door. Uh, I guess because Forbidden Door had that mixed feeling, like the first half was New Japan, the second half was an AEW, let's all run in and do our cool moves. Whereas this match started off as the New Japan match and then it didn't escalate into a more frenetic New Japan tag match. It just kind of stayed on the same wavelength. And that's all right, that's fine. It didn't hit quite the heights that I thought it was going to. But as I say... 
it was a setup match. I also think New, New Japan tags have kind of been ruined for me because I think now there's at least three Japanese promotions that have been killing it with tag team matches and doing them way better. <laughs> like Big Japan is one of them, which I realized last year. I was like, wow, Big Japan's tag matches are sick. All Japan, which I realized this year in the first episode of this podcast, I was like, oh, All Japan tag matches are quite sick too. And then the third promotion I'd say who nails tag matches is probably Dragon Gate, um, who always have. That's been their, like, their thing. Yeah, this was still cool, though. The main event came after that, and it was an interesting one. Sonada defending that IWGP World Heavyweight Championship against a man named Yota Tsuji, a very interesting character. He is freshly back from excursion, like Shota Umino, uh, but he didn't, I think Shota did his excursion here in the UK. I believe Tsuji went to Mexico, where he fell in with a group called Los Ingobernables. Well, I don't know if he did or not. He's certainly in with them now, anyway. Because he came back to Japan and is now kind of Sonata's replacement in LIJ. Sonata left LIJ, became the big champion, and now Suji has stepped in to fill his place in LIJ. And this match is an interesting one because Sonata's still quite a... He hasn't been champion for very long. This is an early title defense for him. The match was actually more of a showcase for his challenger. So I found that strange for Suji. And I came away very impressed with Suji. I want to see more of him. Very interesting figure indeed. He's a bit crazy. He fits in well with LIJ. He's got the slightly unhinged vibe about him. Um, he's a big guy, but he can also dive to the outside very impressively. He's got good power moves, good strikes. Appears to be a big fan of the shield because his two signature moves are a stomp and a spear. I'm just waiting for him to bust out the wacky line at one point. Yeah, I'm quite a fan of his already. I really love when he misses the spear because his missed spears are very entertaining. He misses them in a variety of ways or he can run into various different moves with the missed spear and he gets height on it as well. So when he crashes and burns off it, it looks really cool. I like him a lot. My problem is the crowd also immediately seemed way more into him than the actual champion New Japan are trying to push. So they were audibly more interested in the parts of the match where Suji was on top than when Sonata was on top. Despite that, you know, I thought it was a good watch. It was it was certainly a, a match of the month, but I have to question the booking here. Sonata won, which is the correct decision, but has this match thrown him under the bus slightly? Because you've put him against someone who seems more interesting immediately and fresh and is new on the, on the scene in New Japan. We haven't seen him in this elevated position on the card before. And I just want to see more Yoda Suji. And I don't know if, you know, this was a match that should have even taken place. Neither man should have lost here. Give Sonata a different challenger, please. <laughs> you know what I mean? It didn't do either guy any favors because of the result, because Suji lost his title shot, and Sonata came away kind of overshadowed by the man who faced him. But it was a good match. It was a good match. That was Dominion. As I say, probably the weakest of New Japan's big three pay-per-views so far this year, but still a good show. I only highlighted the two final matches there because I thought they were the two best matches but the whole show is worth a watch if you're in a New Japan, I'd say. And uh, I don't have any more notes on Dominion, do I? No. I'll tell you what's happened there. I got confused because I've printed off my notes and my 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 printer configuration thing is currently to print double-sided. And I normally print single-sided, but I'm trying to be kind to the environment. while that may do well for my conscience and my moral compass, it's done badly for the flow of this podcast. Let's move on very swiftly and see what's been going on. In America. The Marine General making the 
Yeah, we're all over the place in America this time. There's been great matches popping off all over the place. I thought we'd start off by talking about, uh, just because obviously Money in the Bank is going to be in next month's podcast, I thought it'd be nice to shove in the WWE match first to talk about here because it was very good. But there's not a lot of other WWE matches to talk about just because of the way the year is, just the way the month has fallen, I should say. So the match I want to talk about as you might have heard there, is Gunter versus Kevin Owens on Monday Night Raw, which was a wonderful match, I thought, a wonderful match. I started off thinking, yeah, this is a wonderful TV match, but it really developed into something more that you could possibly envision seeing on pay-per-view. And I think it stood out for two reasons. One, Kevin Owens, who really brought a disruptive energy to things, really acted as a, a great counterpoint, I think, to Gunter's measured dominant ways. So the rhythm of the match felt totally unique because you, you'd have moments where any other Gunter opponent would be down selling on the canvas and Gunter's like methodically breaking them down. Whereas here, Owens would like have a surge of energy and go, no, I'm not going to lie here. And he'd get back up and start firing off right hands and kind of disrupt what Gunter was doing. So I enjoyed the uniqueness of that. Um, he acted as a as a good clash of styles, I suppose, or clash of clash of rhythms with Gunter. If I don't sound too pretentious there, which I do. Uh, the second reason I thought this match stood out was the finishing stretch, because it, it really started to feel more and more like a pay per view match and less and less like a TV match as it went on. There was some great moves hit down the stretch. It escalated and escalated very gradually until eventually you got Owens taking some really terrifying bumps and and doing really well. The the only thing that then dragged it back down for me uh, was probably the finish, which uh, was very TV-esque. The way that, that the other members of Imperium got into it with Sami Zayn on the outside. Everyone's having a little brawl. And then obviously, you know, that, that kind of inadvertently distracts Kev, who then loses directly because of that. That felt a little bit not Gunter to me, who likes to pride himself on winning clean, even though he's a heel. Um, he didn't deliberately cheat. It's just that he benefited from Owens being distracted. So that clashed a little bit with the Gunter we know and love and really did make it feel like a bog-standard TV match. On the other hand, though, everything up until that point was top-notch. And I'd say that this match was probably more pay-per-view in its atmosphere, in its vibe, than the actual pay-per-view match we've just seen between Gunter and Riddle, which was quite short, but I suppose it was to lead up to the... The, the, the Drew's big comeback and everything. But yeah, no, this this Owens Gunter match, man, it was a cool one for certain. Now we're going to cross back over the divide to AEW and we're going to talk about the world title eliminator match between MJF and Adam Colbebay. I absolutely loved this one. What a breeze it was for a half hour match. It flew by. These are two guys who make wrestling look far easier than it actually is. And it was paced wonderfully. I thought they really did the simple things well. And they made very complicated sequences easy for the audience to follow, which is such a skill in itself. If you're doing complicated things, if you're trying to tell quite a complicated story, but you do it in a way that every single person in that arena can understand, you know you've had a really good match. And I think that's what they did here. There was also the big spots as well, the big moments. MJF again calling back to the Brian Danielson match with a huge elbow drop through the table. Uh, we had the submission sequences, we had MJF being caught by the ref with the Dynamite Diamond Ring, but also then we had the, the 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 different take as well. So they didn't just play the hits, they didn't just do the things we kind of maybe expected. They also brought new twists as well. I'm thinking specifically of that Eddie Guerrero spot where MJF pretended that Cole had hit him with the belt because the ref didn't see. 
threw the belt to Cole, took a bump, and then we all expected the ref to be like, Adam Cole, did you hit him with the belt? But the ref's still selling, <laughs> like he's still down. And MJF realizes that he's just handed Cole a weapon and is now at his mercy and gets blasted with the belt. A wonderful take on the Eddie Guerrero spot. I thought it was really, really clever. And I thought that on a wider level as well, the booking of this match overall was great in terms of propelling this story forwards. Because I, right, I'll be honest, I don't necessarily agree with Adam Cole being the guy to take the belt from MJF. And that's hard for me to say, because I'm a big fan of Adam Cole. I think he's really good. I used to think he was only good as a heel. This current run has proven to me that, no, he can be a really good babyface as well. However, I want Eddie I want Eddie Kingston, man, to be the guy to be MJF. I just think it makes the most sense. I don't even think you need to give Kingston a long reign after that. But it looks like that's not the way this is going to go. It might have to be Adam Cole, but they may have telegraphed that slightly. Even during the build-up to the Four Pillars match, you had Adam Cole lurking in the background as like, well, this is the real guy who's going to take the belt from MJF. This was a good way of maybe putting that eventual match on the back burner for now so that they don't have to just kind of end MJF's title reign soon if he has this match with Adam Cole. Because Cole didn't win. It went to a time limit draw, which was a great piece of booking because then MJF, as the Weasley heel he is, can say, well, you never beat me, so you're not getting a title shot. Although it was great. Not like the most complex story in the world, but perfect for the characters involved. And it plants this seed in our minds that Cole's been screwed and Cole deserves it and that Cole has his number and can be MJF because he was about to. I think that's great. Good storytelling doesn't need to be complex all the time. And I thought this was a clever little uh, development to the story. This is where I might say something controversial that you might disagree with. I preferred this match to the 60-minute Ironman match because if you remember, when I talked about that Ironman match, I was really offended by the spot where MJF low blow Brian, got DQ'd, and then pinned him twice in a row. And I was like, how would that keep Brian down for two Well, guess what, guys? I still haven't gotten over it. <laughs> it's probably the best-rated match or the best-regarded match of the year so far that hasn't cracked my top 10 matches of the year so far, sadly. Um, I think when all is said and done at the end of this series at the end of the year that'll be the match that people are like i can't believe that didn't make your top 10 jack you idiot and i'm afraid i just can't bring myself to put i'd be lying to myself guys if i put it in but i thought this match was better for two reasons it didn't have that kind of illogical disruption in the middle with the two pinfold weird low blow thing and also i thought it uh benefited from the element of surprise because the action sucks you in and you kind of forget about the time limit until that very final pinfall attempt. Whereas we knew the Ironman match was going 60 minutes. This was like a an Ironman match in disguise. So I, I loved it. Although it was great. Elsewhere, what do we have here? Oh, yes. Moxley versus Ishii. These two had one of the best G1 Climax matches in my mind in recent memory, maybe. Or at least in the past few years. They had a really good match in the G1, right? It was a five-star match, I think. Uh, and it was great. Now, this wasn't as good as their G1 match, uh, G1 Climax match, because it's a few years later. Ishii's a bit older now, obviously, and and can't really put on the same, exactly the same sort of matches as he used to be able to, but it was still very good, and it was still the sort of match you'd expect from these two. Hard-hitting, brutal, bloody towards the end. Lots of headbutts, which I'm never a fan of, but oh my God, it added to the violence and the drama, so okay. Um... And as I mentioned, I think earlier on, Ishii is still one of the best sellers in the game. Part of being one of the best sellers as well isn't just from 
Because you've got great sellers, people who really draw sympathy, really good baby faces at selling like a baby face Shawn Michaels or somebody like Dolph Ziggler who bumps and sells and makes you think he's been hit by a train every time he takes a big move, which is great. But sometimes being a great seller is about gradually letting things affect you or trying to front up to it and then going, oh no, that hurt actually. And because he's normally so tough and such a badass, Ishii's like great at that. The other big example is Brock Lesnar. If you watch Brock Lesnar sell something, you're like, wow, Lesnar's hurt and it's so effective. And it's not just because of that. He also is great at the art of selling. Like he's clutching his body, he's turning red. He's, it, watch Lesnar when he gets drilled by Goldberg with a big spear or something. It looks like he's going to it looks like he's going to die. <laughs> Ishii's, Ishii's cut from that same cloth as Lesnar in terms of selling, and it really added to this match here. I don't have much more to say about it. It made sense that Moxley won, but it, it was it was a nice, epic AWTV match, and I really enjoyed that. Next up, oh, so many different promotions. We're going to Impact Wrestling to talk about a recent title match over there, which I still don't know. So many weeks later, I still don't know what to make of it. Steve Macklin defending the Impact World Championship and losing it to Alex Shelley of one of my favorite tag teams of all time, the Motor City Machine Guns, Shelley and Saban. And Shelley celebrated with Saban afterwards as well because Saban had won the X Division Championship earlier that same night. So they both hold the belts now. It's maybe teasing, though, a future title match between the two members of the, the tag team, which will be amazing, hopefully. But in terms of just this match, I mean, first of all, it's a huge moment for Shelley in his career, and it's a huge moment for Impact historically because it's one of their greats finally becoming their champion for the first time, which I can't argue with. But I, I want to argue with the timing. <laughs> or the Yeah, because similar to Sonata over in New Japan, I have to question the, the very booking of this title match. Although at least in Sonata's case, they had him beat Yota Suji, whereas here they had Macklin lose this belt, lose the belt, and I don't understand why they've given up on his run so early unless he's going to be champion again a few months down the line, but just carry on the run through it, I guess. Because Macklin, it felt like they were building him up for ages and uh, to take the belt from Josh Alexander. Then Alexander got injured at the worst possible time, which was unfortunate for everyone involved. Obviously, most unfortunate for Alexander himself because he was the one who got injured, but also very unfortunate for Macklin because I feel like it was going to be like his big crowning moment, wasn't it? He was going to beat Alexander and ascend to the main event level. Then instead, Alexander got injured, the belt got vacated, and Macklin had to end up beating Kushida, who no one ever realistically thought was going to win the belt. So it was an underwhelming beginning to his title reign. And now it's over. I can't believe it's over so soon. I thought he was the next, the next big dominant champion they were going to have. Anyway, the match was a pretty good one. <laughs> I've just crapped all over the book and I've gone, well, the match was good, though. The action was all solid. The finishing stretch was very exciting. You can't argue with the pop when Shelley wins the belt, finally, of course. But yeah, I think if I'd known that Shelley was going over, I and I was the like the, the agent of this match, I would have produced the match very differently. I think I'd have given Macklin way more of the match. I'd have had him dominate Shelley and batter him, and Shelley really has to fight back and pull one out of the bag. This match, if you watch it all the way and then pause before the finish, you'll think, well, Shelley's given a good go of it, but Macklin's obviously going to win in the end. Whereas, no, Macklin <laughs> was kind of outfoxed by Shelley for a lot of the match, matched 50-50 with him, and then lost. So I don't think it helps Macklin. Quite paranoid there that when I was recapping that, I kept calling Macklin Saban or Shelley. I, I don't know. Let's move on. The match was good, but the, the decision I don't think was, even though I'm a huge fan of Shelley. They had a rematch in Australia recently, which uh, I haven't seen, but apparently was very good. But apparently Macklin is now injured, maybe because of that match. 
And I, I was trying to Google to find out how severely he's injured, but apparently Impact are waiting until they're back in the States to get an official diagnosis. So obviously, best wishes to Macklin. Hopefully he can recover quickly. Impact's bad run of injury luck continues. So we'll have to see where that all goes. But yeah, this was a, this was a great match, but one where I can't honestly say I agree with the booking, even though one of my faves won. Ring of Honor next, which... Which AEW has completely overshadowed, hasn't it? Let's be honest. I feel so bad for fans of the brand and the spirit of Ring of Honor because kind of doesn't really exist much anymore. But luckily, they did have a good match on this TV show this time around, which was uh, Athena versus Kiera Hogan in a Chicago street fight for Athena's Ring of Honor women's title. Uh, this is on Honor Club. And I enjoyed this match for what it was, which was a scrappy hard-hitting, at times wince-inducing, violent brawl with both women wearing denim because it's a street fight. Yes. Athena, this is my favorite match of hers that I've seen for quite a while. It's a shame she doesn't get more of a spotlight, especially on AWTV, uh, because she's wonderful. A really good wrestler. Remember how great she was in NXT as Ember Moon? She's also one of the best interviews I've ever done. I've never met her, but I interviewed her over the phone. And I, I cringe listening back to that interview because... It was probably around this time of year, actually. But I remember, because I get hay fever in, in sort of June, July time. And I was, uh, I listened to it back. And she's been so nice and answering all the questions. And she, she gave really funny answers, really insightful answers. She was a great, great interview. And I'm just on the other end rasping <laughs> because of my voice. So I hear, my, I hear myself go, what's your favorite match, Athena? <sighs> and I'm like, oh, Jack, you sound like an absolute pervert. I just hate listening back to it. I hope she didn't think I was weird. <laughs> she had a great match here with Kira Hogan. Because she was so nice, Athena, in that interview, I thought, wow, she's such a face. She's never turning heel. And she's turned out to be a really good heel. She made Kira Hogan look like a million bucks in this match. Although Hogan did a lot of that herself as well, to be fair. But uh, Athena's clearly like the one leading the match. There was an unfortunate table breakage or lack of being able to break the table. But fair play to her, like a good baby face. Kiera just climbed up a bit higher and jumped on the table again. And one of the legs collapsed, like it still didn't break. But the crowd appreciated her efforts to put uh, Athena through the table. There was a superplex towards the end onto this like devilish chair contraption on the outside, like a, a, a house of chairs, um, which just about went OK, but was very scary. Um, and they really went for it. I can't fault the effort of either woman here. I thought it was really good. Definitely the best match I've ever seen Kara Hogan have, but I have to admit I've not seen too many. Um, just just her, like, when she was in Impact or in the baddies in AEW, just kind of tag matches I've seen with her. But, no, I thought she was I thought she was really impressive here. And obviously Athena was, but that's no surprise because she's a very talented lady, and I'm glad she's Ring of Honor world champion. Women's world champion. Is it world? Yeah, it's still world, isn't it? Ring of Honor Women's World Champion. There's two more matches I want to talk about in the America section. First one is on NXT, everybody's favorite brand in WWE. It's uh, Dragon Lee versus Nathan Fraser for the Heritage Cup. While watching this, I thought, you know what? These British rounds matches are starting to grow on me. For a lot of non-British people out there listening to this, you might think, Jack, you can't you can't say that. That's your national wrestling match type. I've never really been a fan of it. I don't think it's ever used that well these days. I think it's too disruptive to the momentum of a match. But since it's moved over from NXT UK to American NXT, these matches have been used very well, in my opinion, these British rounds matches. Dar was excellent at them. 
Unfortunately, he's now lost the cup because he's injured. Nathan Fraser's very good at them. Dragon Lee's very good at them. And I enjoyed this match a lot. Um, I felt a little bit bad for Dragon Lee, actually, I've got to say, because I remember a few years ago being absolutely wowed by him when he was in New Japan. Like, my jaw would drop. He had an amazing match with Will Ospreay one time, I remember. It may have been at a Dominion show or something like that. It was an unreal match. Now he's on NXT, you know, helping to get Nathan Fraser over. Not that Nathan Fraser isn't somebody worth getting over. Of course he is. He's an incredible talent. But Dragon Lee should also be on a higher level than he currently occupies. He's an amazing talent. And I hope he doesn't get lost in the limbo that is NXT for too long. This was a great match. Promising signs, of course, for Nathan Fraser, especially because they're giving him the rub of... They keep mentioning him in the same breath as Rollins. He was trained by Rollins, blah, blah, blah. Even the other week on NXT, when Rollins went down to NXT, they had him encounter Nathan Fraser and go, ah, my trainee, you're doing well, kid. They've got big plans, surely, for Nathan Fraser if they're doing this. So there we go. So that that was that was a very, a very, very cool match. Um... The other match I wanted to mention in the America section was not tip, not actually a match that took place in America. I've got to say, I've been a little bit cheeky there, but it was a match from CMLL and it featured one of my ultimate New Japan boys, El Desperado. Now this match was two out of three falls, as many matches in CMLL are, which gave it a very unique rhythm because you've got one fall over within minutes. The second fall over within minutes. Both guys have pinned each other clean. And then um, the third fall goes a little bit more epic and a little bit longer. But this was, yes, yeah, sorry, I'll, I'll mention the full match. This was El Desperado versus Mascara Dorada 2.0. He was previously Pantarita Del Ring Jr. The original Mascara Dorada, I believe, was Grand Metalik. He's now back, but he's keeping the Metalik name. So we've got this new Mascara Dorada 2.0. And he looks to be someone that CMLL are interested in pushing a bit. Because he beat El Desperado here. <laughs> After I went on that big tirade earlier about New Japan don't like their guys losing. Well, Desperado's lost here. Yeah, the two out of three falls thing made it a bit weird because you had them both pin each other straight away. And you thought, well, they, neither of them look very strong here. But I guess you have to kind of immerse yourself in the, this is CMLL, this sort of stuff, CMLL, CMLL, excuse me. This sort of stuff just happens. This is the universe. This is the way these matches go in this universe. So that makes sense, I suppose. The match, the third fall was easily the best fall of the match. And down the stretch, they both started exchanging dives, which were very exciting. And then Desperado kind of botched one and Dorada 2.0, rushed to catch him and did so. Full credit to him. It didn't look great, obviously. But the rest of the match was pretty spot on. I just couldn't overlook that one botch, unfortunately. And it's from a guy that I absolutely love, El Desperado. And Desperado lost, yeah. Fair play to Mascara. Uh, looks like he might be a big thing going forwards. He did one of those rope walk spots that I'm not a fan of these days. I like the Phoenix rope walk spots because they're fast, they're efficient. They get to your opponent and then he boots them in the face. But the ones that guys like El Hijo del Vikingo and Commander have been doing in the past few months, wowing audiences in AEW and stuff, don't like it, lads. Don't like it because it, it just breaks my illusion or my immersion slightly too much. I know that's not very cool to say, but it just I just struggle a little bit. It starts to look a bit more like an acrobatics contest for me. And hey, I love those Osprey Ricochet matches, so I'm not against that sort of thing when it's at least attempting to look like a fight scene, even, in a movie. But 
when you've got a bloke on one side of the ring and you go all the way to the other side, climb up on the ropes, pause, walk slowly across the ropes just to show that you can do a tightrope and then do a big dive onto him and he's been stood there waiting for you for ages. That's when I start to struggle a bit. And I know that Vikingo and Commander have been getting so over recently with Western audiences or sorry, English speaking audiences and that's great. But I worship more at the altar of Titan. Titan is my guy. CMLL is my promotion, not AAA, none of this nonsense. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I prefer the Lucha style in CMLL probably. And this was a great match, so do check. <laughs> God, I've turned into a bit of a zealot, a bit of an extremist for CMLL. Down with AAA, up with CMLL. Let's go. Um, so apart from that last match, which happened in Mexico, that was what happened in America. I feel like I'm losing the plot. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. deemed this final section Japanese tag team fun because my god there were a lot of fun tag team matches in Japan in the month of June this year starting off with the uh, match at All Together Again cross promotional show between New Japan All Japan and Noah they're all from the same seed of Ricky Dozan and the, the, the legacy of Japanese wrestling. And then you've got New Japan. You've got Inoki's promotion. Then you've got Baba with All Japan. And then, then Noah split away with Mizawa from All Japan. And these, these three promotions 
basically tell the story of modern Japanese wrestling. And they all came together for this big super show. And the main event was so overblown and full of characters and so silly that I just couldn't help but love it. The team of, well, I've called them Team Good Boys because they're all kind of faces in this match. But I've called them Team Good Boys, which is Hiroshi Tanahashi, Go Ace, the ace of New, uh, the ace of all Japan, sorry, Kento Mihara, and Noah's Kaito Kiyomiya, all teaming up against Team Edgy Boys. Because again, they're, they're faces, but they're edgy. Kazuchika Okada, the Rainmaker, Yuma Aoyagi from All Japan, who's kind of Mihara's rival, but best friend as well. They're frenemies. And Noah's Keno, martial arts hardman of Noah, who has also been feuding with his counterpart on the other team, Kiyomiya, recently. So lots of good, lots of good parallels in this match, lots of good matchups to have. And there was just so much pettiness. In my notes I've written, <laughs> I was not expecting to enjoy this match as much as I did. It's just six, <laughs> apologies for this, I've just written, it's just six petty bitches. And it was. They were all being really dramatic in this match, all the blokes. Loads of great moments. I think pretty much every possible combination was explored and they all had a showdown at one point or another. But the main thing, I think, was the tension between Okada and Kiyomiya. Because obviously they had a great match earlier in the year where Okada absolutely sunned Kiyomiya and put him back in his place, went, don't you disrespect me, and battered him. And that, that is carrying on all the way into the G1 Climax, probably, where they may well meet and they should because they should have a rematch because it was excellent. But yeah, each of the, it wasn't just Okada and Kiyomiya's kind of really frantic, brawly showdowns that were good in this match. Every showdown brought a slightly different type of energy. So you also had Keno and Kiyomiya, the two Noah guys who'd had several epic clashes this year. Also Mihara and Yuma, who are still, who are partners again in All Japan, but recently had a feud over the belt earlier in the year as well. And of course, it all ended with the two New Japan boys squaring off, Okada and Tanahashi. How storied their rivalry's been over the past decade plus obviously so yeah it was it was a great match perhaps the only drawback i have here would be how in pain tanahashi looked he needs a he needs some time off he needs a rest it was noted by many people at forbidden door as well in his match with mjf which was a fair and it was a cool match and everything but tanahashi has really slowed down recently and he was always going to because he has such a high energy style but he needs a rest or something but he doesn't have one because the G1 Climax is coming up and New Japan have no sympathy for that sort of thing. See the case of Kota Ibushi last year who, or the year before, can't remember, when he really needed time off to recuperate from injuries and then just kept getting injured because New Japan kept putting him in big matches. This match was cool. Team Good Boys versus Team Edgy Boys. I'm looking forward to Okada versus Kiyomiya if slash when it happens. Now I want to focus on the two All Japan lads, Kento Mihara and Yuma Aoyagi. They have been in one of my top 10 matches of the year so far. I refer to it all the time in this series. The All Japan Tag Team match they had against each other months ago. And I found that match so intriguing because it got really intense. And it was between two former tag partners, two former tag champions together who tore into each other with their respective partners. And it was Yuma pinning Kento, the challenger pinning the champion and taking his tag belt from him. This all led up to a big title match in All Japan, which happened earlier this year. Kento versus Yuma, old friends going at it. Kento retained. I thought, fair enough. Then Yuji Nagata, bloody 50-year-old New Japan legend Yuji Nagata, went over to All Japan and just beat Kento and took the belt from him. And I was fuming. 
Not because I don't like Nagata, just because I thought if you're building up this bloke to take the title from his best mate, who happens to be the ace of all Japan, don't just scrap that and have this old 50-year-old New Japan legend come in and beat him instead. It felt like a total... It felt like, a total, it felt like if Rollins is built up to beat Roman and then is on the cusp of beating him, then Roman just retains and then, I don't know... Who's like an equivalent of Eugene Agata? And then Sting comes in and beats Roman. Into, that's what it felt like to me. Recently, though, they look to maybe have gotten back on track because I think at the time of recording, just a day or two ago, I think Yuma, the, the one who never won that belt that he deserved, has actually beaten Nagata for the belt. So we might get the Yuma Kento, the real showdown between the two that we deserve, but we'll have to wait and see. Anyway, now that I've given you a bit of background here, Kento and Yuma... The two All Japan boys who fell out, feuded for the belt, they're now back together again. Not only that, they are now All Japan Tag Team Champions together again because they beat the team of Keno and Manabu Sawyer. Keno from, that, from the match we've just talked about, the hard lad of Noah with his big blonde fringe and his mate Manabu Sawyer, who's just evil and hard. <laughs> they had a match for the All Japan Tag Team titles at Dynamite Series Day 2 about midway through June. And it was the match that saw Kento and Yuma win the tag belts once again, as they did a few years ago when they were friends first. It was just nice to see. And the closing stretches of this match elevated it into matches of the month contention for me because it was really epic. It was back and forth. It was increasingly frantic. And I think to the surprise of some of the audience, maybe, the, the All Japan lads pulled it out the bag and brought those titles back home to All Japan. But... Surely Kendo is going to want to go for the, the top belt now. Oh, it's all, what are they going to do? They're going to fall out again? It set up a lot of great potential storylines heading forwards. So the match was okay. It, it did feel like a real struggle, and I was glad to see the result of the match that happened. But they had no time to rest, because then we get to the match that I really want to talk about, which was uh, two nights later, I believe, where Kento and Yuma defended their newly won tag team belts against a man named Atsuki Aoyagi and his friend, Rising Hayato. Now, I'm not trying to infer anything from this feud or this match that, that wasn't... Basically, what I'm saying is this was two actual wrestlers versus two very pretty goth boys, right? Let's, let's, just, let's just be honest. So, Kento and Yuma, right? Two of the top main eventers in all Japan taking on Atsuki Aoyagi, who is one of their younger brothers, right? And he's like the edgy younger brother. And he's young, he's skinny compared to his brother. He's also the junior heavyweight champion in All Japan currently. And he's like a mopey teenager. He's like, oh, I don't want to wrestle my brother. And his mate, Rising Hayato, his like really goth bad influence friend. And they're just running around being little pretty goth boys, hitting dives and then posing in the ring and all the girls in the crowd cheer for them. What I'm saying is I loved the matchup here because you have these two blokes who are like, here, is that your brother and his mate? Why is he wearing... Is he wearing eyeliner? What? Is he a goth? <laughs> That's really what was going on here. Obviously, you had the, t t the two more established stars underestimating their opponents. They suddenly both turn into like Minoru Suzuki, chopping and slapping the younger guys. But then the younger guys build up a head of steam and the crowd just come alive for them. They did that thing where they, they did these like fake dives, flipped back into the ring and did a choreographed pose and went like, yeah. And then the two older blokes dragged them out the ring and it turned into an ugly brawl. It's all great stuff. At one point, Kento Mihara, the ace of this promotion, right, 
benefits from Yuma distracting the ref so he can drag goth boy, what's he called? Rising Hayato, drags him onto the apron and hits a pile driver on him on the apron and then looks up to the crowd for them to cheer him and they boo him. And he's like, why are you booing me? It's like, because you're acting like a heel against these lovable underdogs, Kento. Really good, playing with the crowd's emotions and all that. It was fantastic. And, and then as the match went on and on, you kind of learn, because you go into it expecting the story to be between the two Ayagi brothers, Yuma and Atsuki. But it's not between those two at all. It's between the, uh, the other two, Kento Mihara and Rising Hayato. Goth boy, bad influence friend. Because Kento hates his tag partner's brother's best friend and is taking his head off with moves whenever he can. And that means that the closing stretches between those two and it's flipping, compelling viewing because Kento wants the crowd to chant for him and they start going higher toe, higher toe, higher toe. And Kento looks mortified. I was like, yes, the emotions here are on point. Of course, the established lads won, but what a story they told in doing so. Even though they got the shit kicked out of them, it really benefited the two younger lads, I think, as well. And I'm just looking forward to seeing more from all four of these guys. As I alluded to, though, I think the two champions are going to fall apart and have a big match for that main belt pretty soon. But I'm going to definitely be keeping an eye on the other two because they really impressed me here. And the booking was, the storytelling was absolutely perfect. Loved it. Now, if you, this is where the danger of sites like Cage Match come in. I love Cage Match. It's a wonderful resource. That's cagematch.net where you can get match ratings. You can see what matches have taken place. You can gauge what's good this this week in wrestling or whatever. It, it's, been a, it's been invaluable in me seeking out matches to then watch for this podcast. But you can never trust it too much. Because to look at this cage match rating for this match and compare it to the match that came immediately before it on the very same night, you'd think that the the match I'm about to talk about was the far better of the two. And I honestly thought that the clash of the two brothers and their mates was way better than this match I'm about to talk about. But on cage match, the consensus seems to be that this this new match I'm about to talk about was way better. And I just can't for the life of me work out why people think that. Because I thought that other one was superb. Not to say this one wasn't very good, because it was good. I just can't get on board with the general consensus with this one, unfortunately. So this match was one of my favorite tag teams over the past year or two. Strong BJ, we've laughed at the name before, Daisuke Sakamoto and Yuji Okabayashi, two big Japan dads, big, hard, strong men, taking on two even bigger men from all Japan, Violent Giants. That's the team of Suwama and Shuji Ishikawa. Two of the members of the opposing teams have had like many epic bouts over the past few years. That's Yuji and Shuji. They've, they've had some excellent clashes in the past, the recent past as well. And also, the two teams have had some epic matches over the past few years as well. So, Strong BJ versus Violent Giants, it's, it's, a, it's a renowned epic clash. So maybe that's why it had a higher rating than the previous tag match? I don't know. Maybe also it benefited from coming earlier on in the night, because this match actually was the earlier of the two. But I just don't think it was as good. And that's a shame, because it was entertaining for what it was, it was which, by which I mean it was a big old dad-off. But compared to other matches in the history of Strong BJ versus Violent Giants... This is probably like the weakest one I've seen. I mean, you know I love me some Big Japan. So I'm definitely supporting Strong BJ in this one. Also, I, I kind of see Suwama, one of the members of Violent Giants, as like the, the mid-2000s Triple H of all Japan, because 
when Kento Mihara was being initially pushed to the top of All Japan, Suama would just like win the belt from him occasionally when he didn't need to. And he's on the booking committee, I believe. So, you know, I've never been the biggest fan of Suama because of that. I guess this match did well for what it was. And, and it, I just think it coasted off its history. But everyone else seems to have loved it. It was it, it definitely had big dramatic moments, huge lariats, big power moves, terrifying splashes off the top, because all four of these guys are big, big boys, so everything they do has got extra impact and feels really dangerous and real. That's the positive part of this match. The negative for me is that it, it just felt a bit clumsy. The best forms of these matches are when they're wild and out of control, but also underpinning that is a real tightness and a real um, care in what you're doing, whereas this just felt a bit messy to me. I don't know. I still enjoyed it for a big messy brawl, but compared to them, then that for that other tag match to come immediately after, I just thought that was the clear winner of the two. Strong BJ are still a great tag team, and and you know when they're matched up against faster or younger opponents, that's maybe what I want to see going forwards. Because those previous matches with Violent Giants, really good stuff, but maybe they're just getting on a bit too much to have these sort of matches without one of the teams being a bit younger and a bit more fresh. The last match I want to talk about in this section, and for the whole podcast, in fact, it's sad, but I've got to go soon, was uh, from Stardom, who've been on fire the past couple of years. Great promotion, as we all know now. And this was a match with severe storyline consequences, you guys. It was a 12-woman, six-on-six, cage match. Loser has to leave their stable. Whoa, escape rules on. So... The last 11 women are going to escape the cage and the last one left has to leave her stable. And while it wasn't the cleanest match executed of the month and while it wasn't the best paced and while it wasn't the, the best wrestled because it was a bit of a mess. There's 12 women in there all going for it. It was always going to be a little bit messy and a little bit chaotic. But while it wasn't the cleanest match, the storytelling was on point. This was high drama. This was like going to the film, going to the movies and watching a great thriller film, a great action thriller like, you're not looking... It's no psychological drama. It's no art house, really amazing comment on the human condition. You're going for the explosions and the twists and the turns and the action. And that's what we got. And I cannot complain. Queen's Quest, the team of Miyu Amasaki, Lady C, Hina, Sayakamatani, Azumi, and Utami Hayashishita taking on Odeo Tai, Ruaka, Starlight Kid, Momo Watanabe, Saki Kashima, uh, Natsuko Tora, uh, Natsuko Taura, excuse me, there was a U in there, and Rina. I'll try and break down what happened here, because a lot did happen. Queen's Quest are the, the big babyface stable of stardom, but they're also kind of arrogant, like they know how good they are. Led by Utami Hayashishta, who until a year or two ago was the big dominant champion in stardom. But there's been tension in the ranks between Utami Hayashishta and rising star Saya Kamatani, who's like the company's kind of golden girl. I don't think the fans have taken to her quite as much yet, but the company are definitely interested in pushing Saya Kamatani. I've mentioned her in this series already for a match she had with Hazuki, where the crowd really wanted Hazuki to win, but the company girl won instead. That's her, Saya Kamatani. She's the company girl company want to push her. She's looking to possibly usurp her stable leader, Utami Hayashishta. So you'd go into this thinking, oh no, one of them is going to be the loser of this match. Possibly the big star, Utami Hayashishta. She might lose this match. And then her stable is taken over by Saya Kamatani. That's what I thought was going to happen going in. Especially because they're facing 
Odeotai, the big heel stable, who are ruthless. They're all going to pull out every trick in the book. They've all brought weapons in with them. There's loads of kendo sticks. There's a table. There's even a ladder. They're looking like they're going to do some serious damage in this one. And instead, we get a moment towards the end. Basically, throughout the match, Utami, the leader of Queen's Quest, the hero of the story, she's been very selfless. She's been helping her teammates escape, but she's been staying in the match towards the end. And suddenly she's getting outnumbered by the members of Odeo Tai. And suddenly she's busted wide open. She's lying on the canvas. She's out of it. And there's just one member of Odeo Tai left. And all she needs to do is escape. And uh, that member is uh, Saki Kashima, by the way, who ends up losing the match because Utami Hayashista heroically comes back, starts to climb over the cage, right? And then as she's about to escape, Sayaka Matani, her rival from within her own stable, looks like she's about to betray her on the cage wall and she chooses not to instead. And she actually knocks down a member of Odeo Tai who was trying to interfere. So they've put off the inevitable for now and they've presented Queen's Quest as a united front and it's an excellent unexpected swerve which will surely bubble under even more going forwards. I love the slow burn storytelling. I love the shameless high drama, melodrama of this match. As I mentioned, there was a lot of sloppy moments. The pacing was all over the place a little bit. But in terms of drama and uh, storytelling, I loved the explosions, basically. I loved the twists and the turns, man. It didn't stop at the final bell because then, like any heel stable would, Odeo Tai beat down Saki Kashima, who just lost her place in the stable by losing the match, as per the stipulation. And her stable are not sympathetic. They all beat her down. Queen's Quest, the stable that's just won, make the save, and they all kind of extend an olive branch to Saki and say, hey, Saki, you're all right. You okay? Do you want a handshake, mate? And she just leaves. She's like, no. No, because obviously she's just been betrayed by her own stable who she's been forced to leave. She's an emotional wreck. She's not just going to go over to the good guy's side right now. She walks off on her own, cuts a very isolated figure, which um, gives us intrigue to see what happens with her next. So... There's three different things going on here. There's what's going to become of the heel stable now they're down a member. Is there going to be more fractions in the... Uh, fractions? Fra- fracture, fractures? Is there going to be more fractures in the group? What's going to happen with Saki? Is she going to be okay? <laughs> is she going to turn face? Is she going to remain a heel? What's going to go on with her? Is she going to find a new stable? And then we've got what's going on with Queen's Quest. What's going to happen between Saya Kamatani and Utami Hayashishta? And I can't wait to find out. Also, this match featured Azumi and uh, Starlight Kid two of my faves in stardom who are currently occupying a position in my overall top 10 of the year. So it was nice to see them as well. And yeah, just a great dramatic bit of storytelling. And with that, let's get on to my top 10 matches of June. In at number 10, I have put uh, from Monday Night Raw, Kevin Owens versus Gunter. At number 9, Sonada defending that IWGP World Heavyweight Championship against the new kid on the block, Yota Tsuji. Number 8, the Stardom Cage match I just talked about. Number 7, on AEW Dynamite, John Moxley versus Tomohiro Ishii. Number 6, at Forbidden Door, Brian Danielson versus Kazuchika Okada, making Okada tap out. Who would have thought it? Uh, number 5, the Elite versus the Blackpool Combat Club, also at Forbidden Door. Number 4, the big, silly, 3 promotion 
promotion six-man tag team match between New Japan, All Japan, and Noah. Loved it. Number three, it's Kento Miyahara and his best pal and fellow tag team champion Yuma Aoyagi taking on Aoyagi's little brother and his goth friend in a great, in my favourite tag team match of the month. It was awesome. Number two, MJF versus Adam Cole. 30-minute time limit draw on AEW TV. And number one, I think we all knew it, at Forbidden Door, Kenny Omega getting destroyed by Will Ospreay. And all that remains before I say my goodbyes is the overall top 10 matches of the year so far. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to crack this top 10 as the year goes on, but that's just the way it was going to go. So at number 10, we have a match that I added last month. It's one half of Strong BJ, my boys from Big Japan. It's Yuji Okabayashi losing his belt to the man he trained, Yuya Aoki. At number 9, it's Triad Rules. It's Shingo Takagi versus Taichi in New Japan Pro Wrestling. At number 8... Glate on YouTube for free. Glate's the name of the promotion. I wasn't just doing a weird rhyme. El Linderman versus Kaito Ishida from way back in January. At number seven, Stardom High Speed Championship action. Azumi taking on her longtime rival, Starlight Kid. Number six, Ring of Honor World Championship on the line. Claudio Castagnoli versus Eddie Kingston. A match we could see a rematch of if the vicious stares between Claudio and Eddie are anything to go by on recent AW programming. Uh, number five, I mentioned this many times already. The All Japan Tag Team match from earlier in the year. Kento Mihara and Takuya Nomura against the man he's now reconciled with. Yuma Aoyagi and Naoya Nomura. Uh, number four, WrestleMania Night 1 main event. The Usos losing against Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens. Number three, Osprey Omega 1 from back in Wrestle Kingdom. Number two... Osprey Omega 2 from Forbidden Door. It's pipped it, but it hasn't managed to pip my match of the year so far. WrestleMania Night 2, Gunter, Sheamus, and Drew McIntyre. It's going to take some toppling. And with that, I'll see you very, very soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. For all the wrestling headlines in just 10 minutes, search Cultaholic Wrestling News on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. 